Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is the New Books Network Seminar. Welcome to the podcast, and thanks so much for joining us today for a podcast about a book I'm super excited about. So I just finished talking with Steve Shaviro about his book, Discognition. This came out in 2016 with Repeater Books. And one of the reasons I'm so excited about this book, I think it's brilliant, it's um, really clearly and beautifully written, but In addition to that, it really explores the relationship between um, what we might call kind of more academic discourse, academic forms of writing about and thinking about problems, and forms that we might not all consider to be academic, right, but that are still potentially scholarly, like fictions, like narratives, speculative fiction, science fiction. And it really models why thinking across those two realms, bringing those together matters and what can happen when we do that. So the book itself looks specifically at sentience, um, and it draws its title from this. Um, It says right in the introduction, sentience is less a matter of cognition than discognition. So that's where we get the title from. You'll hear all about the relationship between sentience and cognition in the hour to come as Steve will take us through um, his thoughts about chapters on what it's like to think like a philosopher, like a computer, like an avatar, like a human being, like a killer like an alien and then like a slime mold. So we'll talk about many of those chapters, if not all of them specifically. And what you'll hear is that while the book largely focuses on speculative fictions that are written as such, short stories, novels, it also opens and closes by modeling what it can look like to read not explicitly sci-fi materials as speculative fiction and thus kind of contribute to conversations around those objects in new ways. So it opens by reading a thought experiment from philosophy as a kind of speculative fiction, and it closes by reading scientific papers about slime molds as a kind of speculative fiction. And you'll hear Steve talking about um, that process and what we can gain from that in the moments to come. So with that, I'll leave you to it um, and just recommend strongly that you find a copy of the book and dive in because it's a real pleasure to read as much as it is really, really thought-provoking. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. I'm here today to talk with Stephen Shaviro about his new book, Discognition. Welcome back to the New Books Network seminar, Steve, and thanks very much for making time to talk with me today about the book. It's a pleasure to have you back. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here again. So, Steve, the book opens with a series of questions. What is consciousness? How does subjective experience occur? Which entities are conscious? What's it like to be a bat or a dog, a robot, a tree, a human being, a rock, a star, a neutrino? Discognition looks at a series of science fiction narratives to raise and explore these and related questions about consciousness and sentience. So let's start by uh, talking a little bit about what brought you to this project. Steve, can you say a little bit about how you came to this project and to conceive of Discognition as a book-length project specifically? Well, it just, I mean, I one, one part of the answer is that I had a series of texts well, there's always a lot of text, but I had a series of texts that I was fascinated by that focused on this question. It's also not being a philosopher, but I try to read a certain amount of philosophical literature and noting that I, it just seems clear that these problems concern everybody. They're among the most basic questions you could ask. And yes, nobody has an idea whatsoever how to think about it. You have to think the smartest philosophers in the world and they volunteer disagree about everything. Each one makes brilliant arguments and yet they totally disagree with each other. So you have something 
a kind of thing which is really wide open in the sense that it's a big topic of conversation, both for philosophers and I think for people in general. And yet it's something where we really don't know at all. And where despite all the advances in neuroscience, let's say over the last 20, 30 years, we still haven't the faintest idea. And you can tell that we haven't the faintest idea just by reading the different, how different positions are by, from professional philosophers. Well, anyway, so part of my idea is just that I, I see science fiction as a way of addressing questions that can't yet or can't at all be you know, pinned down completely rationally. Or science fiction is interesting because it's, it, it involves a certain kind of rationality. It's about thought experiments. And yet it goes over frontiers where we simply don't know. And we don't even know whether we'll ever be able to know. So science fiction is speculative and it speculates on all kinds of issues. But one of the issues it does speculate is this whole question of consciousness, sentience, etc. And as I said, it's an issue which fascinates everybody and which a lot of philosophers spend a lot of spilled a lot of ink working over but which there's no consensus whatsoever so that's right oh thank you so much and i mean in the introduction you actually talk a little bit about this and i was going to ask you um to address this anyway if it hadn't already yeah. come up um and that is specifically what can science fiction bring to the table right and bring to the conversation and you talk about the ways that science fiction um addresses not just cognition but how we know what it is to feel, right? And how we yeah. might act. Um, so that emphasis on feeling and potential action, I think is really helpful in thinking about the relationship between sci-fi and philosophy here. Yeah, I think that's that's part of it. I mean, there are some philosophers who, who've talked about science fiction as a useful kind of thought experiment space. Um, Eric Schwitzgabel at University of California, Riverside is probably the most noteworthy. He's actually started writing science fiction stories in addition to philosophical essays. And he talks a lot about science fiction and doing philosophical work on his blog. So that's partly what influences me, but I'm not a philosopher. I mean, my background is in literature and film. And that's sort of the way I, so I think about texts or works as not only language works in, in a certain way, which comes from my background, which is different from, I think, from how philosophers think about issues. But in an area where we don't have either scientific or rational philosophical answers very much because it's so wide open, it's especially a good way for science fiction to work. So, I mean, what is it like to be a bad is a famous essay by the philosopher Thomas Nagel from the 1970s. And he argues that basically from all evidence, bats are conscious, they have experiences. It feels like something, they have, it feels like something to be what they are. He, he's opposing that to the sense that maybe a rock or a table doesn't have anything that feels like what it is to be a rock or a table. Though, of course, even that is dubious because other people will have other views on that. But um, how, if you try to imagine something which basically is beyond the limits of imagination, something that you can't you know, really get, get any data about. We have a lot of information. I mean, in human beings, there's already the gap between what we can objectively, scientifically find out and what people report of how they feel. And it gets even more complicated if, as many studies have shown, people aren't always correctly aware of what they're feeling. You can have non-conscious feelings and so on and so forth. But the question, but but so so we have this gap even we just really limit to human beings. <clears throat> but it becomes even more of a question when you think of other entities in the universe, other living things, or other entities in general, which might be conscious or might have experiences. So how can you, you sort of have to speculate on these things? Speculation is a term which has become popular in recent years. For a long while, it was disparaged among philosophers, sort of German idealist philosophers speculated, and hard-headed Anglo-American analytic philosophers thought speculation is just sort of, they often call it armchair theorizing, just sitting around and imagining stuff, and making stuff up, and then, and then developing rational arguments for it. They didn't think that's very good procedure. But in fact, it's part of how our minds work and it's part of how we relate to the world. We're always telling ourselves stories, imagining things and making things up. And that's not a completely random process. It's logical and involves you know, looking at consequences, looking at sequences, looking at how things can happen. But at the same time, it is fictional. We're entertaining different possibilities. We're not just saying what the world is like. And if you want to ask, what does it feel like to be a bat or for that matter, a dog? I don't see there's any other way <clears throat> to do it. So science fiction in particular, I mean, this could be a general argument about aesthetics, about literature, film, painting, sculpture, <clears throat> music, etc. But 
science fiction, narrative science fiction in particular, is a way of telling stories which probe these issues and which are, as philosophers say, thought experiments, but which are also questions about like, if this were, were to be true or if this were to happen, how would it, we feel about it? What would it what would being us be like if we were in this other situation? Um, you know, if, if plants are conscious, what would a conscious plant think about and feel about? Stuff like that. So it seems to me that science fiction at its best is a form of aesthetic practice or literature or art or whatever you want to call it that actually addresses these kinds of questions and addresses them in a very different way from philosophers addressing them because it's not bounded necessarily by well, it's not bounded ultimately by that we're sure it's, we must be sure that this is true. But the only way we can know about things about which there's no objective way of getting knowledge, at least yet, and maybe it forever, is to kind of speculatively probe them. And that's what science fiction does. But as I said, it has many science fiction theorists and critics talk about the cognitive dimension of science fiction. But science fiction also as a narrative form is also very much about how it feel, how these things feel. What it would be, what, what it's like to be a bat is not just what does a bat know, though some philosophers take it in that sense. A bat uses echolocation to know the location of the insects it eats and things like that. But in fact, it's, it, it's, all, it's a feeling as well as or before at the same time that it's a form of cognition or knowledge. Mm-hmm. Science fiction is particularly good at thinking those kinds of things. So people, uh, I'm so glad that you've um, talked at length about this because people ask me lately, you know, I've done almost 400 podcasts and I'm very, very careful um, these days, you know, all of us have too much to do um, about which books I choose. And I really at this point wanted to talk with you about this book in particular, because I think these issues, right, of what academic or scholarly discourse looks like, the forms that it could take, what counts and what doesn't count are really, really interesting to think with now. More and more of us are working across fiction and nonfiction yeah. forms, right? To try to probe precisely the ki- in the kinds of spaces that you're talking about. And I think it's such an exciting phenomenon that this is part of. And science fiction is one of a number of different forms that let us do this. But it's really exciting to hear you talk about this and also um, to read the book for that reason. I think the book is really um, making a case for taking playfully and seriously forms that in certain academic fields were not trained to necessarily take seriously, but all of us read or all of us watch or listen yeah. to, right? but we kind of keep yeah. that to the side. Um, so let's get right into the book, right? Okay. Um, in the introduction, in the words of the introduction, you say, we're clearly sentient, and yet we do not know what sentience is, how it can exist, or what it means. Now, the book states explicitly in the intro that we ought to resist the all-too-common equation of sentience with cognition. Since uh, So since we've used uh, these terms already in the first few minutes of the conversation, let's start here. For listeners who may not be familiar with the book or who may not have a sense of what the distinction is, can you talk for a little bit about the relationship between cognition and sentience as they're mobilized in the book? What's sure. the difference and, and why does it matter, Steve? Okay. Well, I should add another term, which is consciousness, mm-hmm. because that's a big concern for of everybody's and is a big thing that's being discussed. But um, I'm looking at both, as I said, I'm a background of what philosophers have written recently about these subjects, but also um, going from there to science fiction as a deal with these subjects and also looking at how both these, both science fiction and philosophy relate to things like cognitive science, cognitive psychology, neuroscience, neurobiology, et cetera. But okay. So um, one big argument in philosophy today, as far as I gather from outside the field, is a question of consciousness. What does it mean to be conscious? Or how can we account for consciousness? Which, And if consciousness sort of means that, um, I mean, you could do, you, we do often do things which are not conscious. And one thing that's happening now is that people are increasingly recognizing the degree to which non-conscious um, activity takes place. You can do lots of things without being aware that you're doing it. If you're, you know... I walk home every day and I walk, take the same route. And sometimes I mean to take a different route. I end up taking the same route anyway. This is a, I don't drive, but this is a common experience when people are driving. So in a certain sense, you're not conscious of what you're doing. You're just sort of doing it. You do it so automatically and so well that you just do it. 
And that sort of suggests that complex activity doesn't have to be conscious. On the other hand, we sort of feel that, and are we kind? I mean, we don't even know what it means to say we're conscious when we sleep. I mean, if you're dreaming, presumably you're conscious, but it's hard to remember it when you are awake. And there are parts of sleep where you don't have consciousness. There are all kinds of activities which occur non-consciously. So one question which philosophers ask, what does it mean to be conscious? And some philosophers are very dismissive about this and say it's sort of just, you know, an epiphenomenon. It doesn't really mean anything. Others are sort of saying this is sort of the intimate quality of experience that we have and that we assume other people have. I can never know for sure that somebody else is conscious, but um, basically we judge as crazy anybody who would think that they are be a total solipsist and think they are the only conscious beings and everybody else is an automaton. This is roots in philosophy. It goes back to to Descartes, who wonders, how do I know that I'm not the only conscious being in the world and that all the people I see going down the street are just automatons? Um, but so consciousness has a weird special status in, and it has something to do with feeling as well as with knowing. And it's something which is, which is the most familiar thing to us and yet which is very hard to define or to point to or anything like that. And philosophers take the, a range of things from saying that it's basically almost it's, it's basically kind of an illusion and not much of anything to it's the most fundamental aspect of reality, and we should therefore think that even even electrons have consciousness in some form, and every possible stance in between. So, so consciousness is one thing. Cognition is a somewhat different thing because cognition is the ability to interact with the world in terms of information, to get information, to process it, to respond to it appropriately. And this happens to greater or lesser extent in different entities. It seems to be a characteristic pattern of living entities, but computers and artificial intelligence are making this question to what extent you have to be alive to be to perform cognitive activity. At the limit, something like a thermostat has two states on and off. It senses the temperature and responds to it by turning on or off the, the heating or the cooling. Um, the philosopher David Chalmers suggests that this must be that even a thermostat in a very minimal sense has some kind of conscious experience. Others would deny that, but they're, they're, you could say it's doing a certain type of cognitive activity and a computer is doing a much more complicated sort of cognitive activity, though arguably an amoeba or a bacteria sensing an, a gradient of nutrients and deciding which, dis, which direction to swim in order to get to the nutrients is doing a much more sophisticated form of cognitive processing than any computer is at least so far. So cognition is related to consciousness, but it doesn't have to be conscious. We know that there are a lot of activities which are done, which involve cognitive processing, which are not conscious. The literary critic, Catherine Hales, who's written a lot about science and literature and computing, has her most recent book, I'm blanking on the title, something like The Cognitive Non-Conscious or something like that, talks about how cognitive activities, both in machines and in biological organisms, are often not conscious and yet are very important to whatever conscious experience we have and to everything we do. So cognition, I mean, a lot of philosophy and a lot of science is focused on cognition. So, I mean, you know, how does the bacteria know which direction, know that, which direction to, to, to go in? How do these entities make decisions? It seems that even very simple single cell entities make decisions to do X rather than Y. They're, they, in addition, it seems that all these entities engage in reality testing. The old model was stimulus response. Something comes in and the organism responds to it. And you could have a gradation between a, a non-life physical organism, which just automatically, you know, by the laws of physics, you kick a stone and it goes flying for a while. But, but it seems that all living things have a more sophisticated relation than that. There's some kind of gap between input and output, and they process and, and make decisions about alternatives. That's a form of cognition, even if it doesn't involve consciousness. And there, there, there are various ways to think about that. But again, a lot of it seems to be non-conscious. A lot of it seems to be ubiquitous, at least among living entities. And it's what, but, but oh yes, the other thing I was going to say is that more recent scientists have suggested that stimulus response is too limited, that at least living organisms seem to continually reality test. In other words, they don't just wait for something to happen to them. They probe the environment and get responses back and adjust their behavior in effect um, on whether the, the information they get back fits with what they expected. In this sense, you could say that, I mean, fruit flies, who have been one of the most extensively or 
studied organisms for this, have expectations about the world. They send mm-hmm. out sound or they move or they feel their environment actively and get back information. And they have a model in their minds somehow of what information they expect. And if it's different, they change their behavior to, to respond. So at least living things seem to reality test, which means instead of they send out, they send out responses or movements and get stimuli back rather than starting from just passively responding to stimulus. And all this has to do with cognition, and we don't know to what extent or whether it involves it's the same as consciousness or not. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the, most of the discussions are about consciousness and cognition. I try to add the term sentience because I think it's broader and everything conscious or not, or not and cognitive, including non-conscious cognitive things, could fit under a larger rubric of what I'm calling sentience. And sentience sort of implies some kind of feelingful response to surroundings, or even not even response, some feeling, some interior feelingful responses. So anything, any feelings we have inside ourselves are sentient, even if we're not conscious of them, we're not reflecting on them. And so, I mean, a bacterium probably does not reflect on its experiences, so it's not conscious, but it is sentient in the sense that it's not just processing information, it's responding in terms of how, the best way to say it is how it feels about what it encounters. And it's dangerous to use the terms because they can be too anthropomorphic. But um, as the critic Jane, political philosopher Jane Bennett has said, sometimes it's better to risk being anthropomorphic in order to avoid thinking that human beings are special and extraordinary and no, nothing else in the universe can do what we can do. So I'd, so that's why, what it would mean to say that bacteria are sentient and that they respond to things, they feel certain ways, even if they don't have consciousness where they don't reflect on their feelings. And so sentient, it seems to me that anything cognitive is a subset of sentience, but that sentience is not just cog- cognition because it doesn't just involve processing, it involves sort of inner sense or inner feeling, even if that inner feeling isn't conscious. Now that, again, is another potential oxymoron because what does it mean if you have a feeling you're not conscious of it? That seems mm-hmm. sort of a contradiction by definition. And yet I think we can pretty strongly establish that we have, you know, I'm jealous of somebody, but I don't really realize I'm jealous of them. So I feel other things about them, but what, what really is a burning with envy about them or something like that? I mean, so mm-hmm. feeling can be a very broad category, which feeling or sentience can be a very broad category which includes you won't have cognition without sentience and you won't have consciousness without sentience, but you may have sentience on a more basic level, even if they don't evolve into or don't involve cognitive or conscious states. Great. Thank you uh, so much, Steve. So the book also makes a, a kind of an assumption or it states a basic assumption in the introduction about all of this. It yeah. states fictions and fabulations are basic modes of sentience and cognition per se is derived from them and can't exist without them. And so fictions and fabulations, um, yeah. this speaks to the relationship between science, science fiction or speculative fiction and philosophy that we were talking about earlier. And it also brings us into the first chapter. So yeah. chapter one is about a counterfactual narrative that has become the focus of a lot of speculation and conversation in the philosophy of mind. This is the story of Mary, which the chapter reads as a science fiction narrative and the kind of overall basic Um, super rough outlines are this. Uh, Mary is a brilliant neuroscientist. She knows everything about color, but she's never perceived it. What happens when she finally leaves her black and white room and black and white existence, goes outside and sees a red rose for the first time, right? That's the question, the kind of story of Mary. Now in leading us into this it gets at the general issue of how we read. Reading the story as science fiction helps us attend to not just the cognitive aspects of what's happening, which the philosophical accounts tend to focus on, but also the aesthetic aspects, right? Um, So Steve, we've talked a little bit about this in general, but this gives us a concrete example to anchor this, um, to kind of model this for listeners. Can you talk briefly about specifically in this case, how does this model um, this particular story of Mary and reading it as a speculative fiction narrative, how does this model what speculative fiction can offer us that philosophical accounts can't in terms of understanding this as a cognitive problem? Okay. Well, I mean, that's what I'm trying to, I mean, partly I, you know, this is a real issue in philosophy. There, there are a number of famous thought experiments in philosophy. I mean, one is like the trolley problem. You 
turn a trolley from a track to kill one person instead of killing the five people with it if you don't turn it, all that kind of stuff. But um, And there are other thought experiments, some of which I mentioned in the text about it, but this is one of the most famous philosophical thought experiments. And you can read volumes. I mean, there's like literally 50 or 60 first-rate analytic philosophers have written essays giving their answers to this problem, which was originally raised by a philosopher. So, I mean, it seems to me, it's a, it's a thought experiment. It seems to me it's kind of a very minimal, but it is a kind of science fiction story. And what I was interested in is what kind of aspects of the story do philosophers write about and would a science fiction, though this is written by a, this is from a philosopher, a science fiction writer, I think, might think of it in other ways and might develop it in other ways. So um, there's, there have been all kinds of responses to, to, to this, ranging from claiming that um, when Mary steps out of the black and white room and sees colors for the first time, which she knows intellectually everything about color, she doesn't, therefore she doesn't have any new experience. New experience. It's, it's, it's some stuff she already knows. That's like one, ext- one, one extreme. Another extreme would be that she's completely, her experience is completely changed because the qualitative experience of seeing a red flower or the blue sky is radically different from anything she scientifically knows about, about mm-hmm. color. And then these are often extrapolated into other arguments. So some of the people who say that she'd have a totally new experience would say that this means that what's in our minds phenomenologically is not just cognition. And from there, they go on to say it's not just physical. It's not just something which can be explained by science in terms of physicality. There must be some kind of non-naturalistic or transcendent reason for way in which consciousness works and stuff like like that. So, I mean, they go in different they go in different directions. And often, I mean, when I read any of these articles, these guys are a lot smarter than me, or at least more rigorous at arguing. And I find their arguments incredibly convincing. And I can't argue against them, except the next article completely argues against and demolishes the first one and gives another rational explanation. And the next one contradicts that. And <laughs> so you have this situation where these really incredibly brilliant people who are much more rigorous in their thought patterns than I am as a mere kind of literateur or esthete are nonetheless can't come to any consensus whatsoever. And to me, it seems to me that relates perhaps to the fact that we have a kind of narrative here, that we have something where fabulation is taken. You cannot ask the question without telling a story, without making fabulation. And there's a larger point here. Some philosophers say that narrative is is basically human fiction. There's no narrative to the universe. Things just happen for no particular reason except for mechanical cause and effect. And, you know, just shit happens and that's all there is to it. And therefore, there is a, there are a number of philosophers who denounce um any form of narrative as radically falsifying its way we lie to ourselves about the world because the world does not exist in narrative form. Um, that seems to me too strong of a thing for me. I mean, it's partly a, so, and, or another way to put it, we say the narratives are just a human construction and they have no correspondence to outer reality. I'm leery of saying that we just impose our constructions on, on reality. I think it has to be more complicated. We're intertwined with things out there. I think we have to accept as the speculative realists do that things out there are independent of our understanding of them and our projections on them. But that doesn't mean that we can't say anything about them really. And the problem of consciousness, I don't, it doesn't seem, I mean, I'm dubious of accounts which say that consciousness is therefore some kind of metaphysical inner thing, which is radically irreducible to physical causes. But but that's based that that seems to be a wrong logical extrapolation on from a right from an obvious intuition that we have these kinds of consciousness and conscious sensations all the time mm-hmm. it's our, our basic defining feature of our awareness in the world so um to say that we just impose narrative upon the world and the world is totally without it is to sort of put us apart from the world say we're not really a part of the world we're just observing the world from a distance and that doesn't seem to me to be true. So anyway, we have all kinds of intertwined problems here that relates to the experience of finding that the philosophers are incredibly brilliant and rational and logically rigorous, and yet they can't come to any agreement and all mutually demolish each other. Um, one might be driven by this into just sort of universal skepticism, which goes back to ancient the ancient Greeks. The skeptics of, ancient, of the ancient Greeks were basically said all logical arguments are ignorant and everything that contains flaws, we can't know anything about anything whatsoever. Um, obviously, I don't want to accept that either because if we really couldn't know anything about anything, we wouldn't be able to survive as organisms, among other things. So anyway, we have all these dilemmas and one way not to solve the dilemma, but to look at it from a different point of view is to think about fiction and fabulation as ways of, as forms of 
relating to the world or as forms of, I mean, as one way would be best to use the word before, fictions and fabulations are in a certain sense forms of reality testing. And they can allow us to add issues in which we don't um, otherwise use. I think I mentioned this in the book when, um, when Frank Jackson, the philosopher, Australian philosopher originally proposed a question about Mary. When he first wrote the article, I was told this at a conference by Maura Gatins, who's a, also an Australian philosopher. And she said that they were colleagues in the same department when he came out with this article. And she asked him, if, how could Mary, if Mary's an adult and she has her period, how does she not see the color red? How does she live in a totally black and white world? And he was perturbed by this and said, well, you know, I mean, I just, I didn't, I wanted to be more politically sensitive, not just assume it has to be, a, you know, a male. So I made a female character instead of a male character, but I didn't even think of that. I mean, there are other things saying one of the most famous philosophical thought experiment is how do I know that I'm not just, a, I'm just a hallucinating reality or, or, I mean, or brain in a, you know, the modern version is a brain in a vat. So Descartes asks, how do I know that I know what I'm certain of is the fact that I have experiences. I think therefore I exist. But how do I know that the experiences aren't all delusional? Maybe some malicious demon is planting every thought in my brain. The modern version of that would be that I'm, you know, I don't really have a body. I just have a brain in a vat with all these electrical wires. Since everything I experience is transmitted through my brain and through chem electrochemical reactions, maybe scientists just have a naked brain and they're putting wires in and sending chemicals through so that I hallucinate of having all the experience. How do I know that this is not the case? Descartes tries to argue that you know, the way you know is because God has to exist, which is not an argument many people would accept now. Um, it's still a philosophical problem today, but when, but it's very, answered in a very different way by, for instance, Philip, the science fiction writer Philip K. Dick. This scenario is pure Philip K. Dick. It's, all, it's utterly paranoid. It implies all kinds of vast conspiracies because if I really am just a brain in a vat, then let's imagine they probably cost billions of dollars to set up this research project and to give me all the stimulation so that I will actually think that. I mean, or the matrix is a, another more modern version of it. So our bodies, we really are hallucinating reality, but these incredible computer networks and energetics and all kinds of things are needed to, to make us experience this. So mm -hmm. it's a way of moving or changing the frame in which we're asking the question. And sometimes when philosophy can't get an answer or when philosophers disagree so much, maybe we might learn more in some indirect oblique way by extending the frame and fiction and fabulation or what science fiction writers do are one way of extending this frame. So, sorry, um, just to kind of jump in, one of the things I really liked about um, what you were just saying is a kind of offhand point, right? The point perhaps is not to solve the dilemma, it's to understand it. Um, and perhaps speculative fictions let us get at this. Now, there are a bunch of chapters yeah. that give us examples of what this looks like. Is there anything you wanted to say about Mary before we move on? Because there's a ton of them, and we're not going to have time to get yeah, to all no, of them. Yeah, no, I mean, we, get, sure. we should move on to the science fiction the proper then. That's yeah, fine. great. So there are a bunch of chapters um, for listeners, and I'm just going to mark some of them. Um, just because otherwise I would be asking you questions for five hours, yeah, which sure. I would love to do, but, but um, we're not going to do that today. So I'm going to just kind of recap some of them and ask you to dive into others. Okay. Chapter two um, focuses on Maureen McHugh's short story, The Kingdom of the Blind. This is from 2011, which is about a computer program named DMS that apparently becomes sentient. It starts acting oddly, exhibiting what might be considered deliberate behavior. And so this chapter makes the point and I'm not going to ask you um, too much about it, right? I'm, uh, just to kind of sum this up, it makes the point that if computers think, they likely do so in ways that are quite different from human thinking. And so the chapter kind of looks into the question of what kind of consciousness is DMS exhibiting and kind of talks a little bit about why that might matter, right? The ramifications of yeah. machine sentience. Now, in general terms, this is a kind of problem that a number of the other science fictions look at as well. And I want to ask you a little bit more about um, the story that you talk about in chapter three, um, which deals with kind of related, if not pre precisely identical kinds 
kinds of concepts. So chapter three looks at Ted Jung's The Life Cycle of Software Objects. This tells the story of digients, intelligent digital organisms that inhabit an online virtual world, Data Earth. So Steve, to kind of cut into this is another example, right? Can you briefly explain like what are these digients and what for you is particularly interesting about how thinking with digients helps us think about sentience? Okay. Well, I mean, Ted Chang is one of the most interesting science fiction writers working today. And he he only writes short stories. He's never written a full-length novel. His short story, The Story of Your Life, became the movie Arrival, which is probably what he's most famous for because it was a successful science fiction movie. But all his stories have a very high level of thinking through thought experiments and thinking through their conditions and what would they would lead what would lead from them and so on. So this story is about digients are like digital entities which exist only in software, only in code, in virtual worlds, but which have but which develop a kind of intelligence of their own. So he's positing something which is beyond what any technology has actually done up to today, but which is not unthinkable in terms of how the technology has been advancing. So, you know, in a digital in, in digital worlds, you have you have multi-sensory protection because you see here sometimes they're, they're developing tactile interfaces also. You have an experience of a world which is not the actual physical world. Often you play a character and the character does stuff. Characters always in, in, mis- in most of these game worlds, which is they're either social worlds or game worlds, characters will interact with... Um, NPCs, non-playing characters, who are essentially kind of automatons or robots who do a few simple things. And they aren't, but but as games develop, they're developing more sophisticated artificial intelligence um, networks. And so the, the game world's response or responses of characters in the game world who are not played by who are just basically generated by the computer, not played by other real people behind this, you know, on the other side of the screen, are getting more and more complicated behavior. So the story sort of asks, and it's more for a social world than for a game world where you just have to kill everybody, is what if we reach a point where we have these software entities, which are self-running programs, which they're not self, they, just like we couldn't continue to run our, ourselves if we were deprived of oxygen, they can't run their programs if they're, divine, if they're deprived of the entire background of code, which creates the universe in which they live, but nonetheless, which develop a certain degree of autonomy they 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 pass a threshold, and we can say they actually think and feel for themselves. And so, the the story really approaches the question of how we can relate to such beings. I mean, what moral responsibility do we have if they pass a certain threshold, where even though they only exist in 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 lines of code in a, in a virtual world generated through computation, they have desires and feelings of of their own what kind of responsibilities do we have to them what kind of things can we do so the story takes two programmers who program these virtual beings and in effect it's a it's a you can almost say it's a rewrite of frankenstein as so much science fiction is frankenstein the original novel by mary shelley is about a creator who creates a monster creates a living being and then abdicates all responsibility to the living being and Unlike in the movies in the original novel, Frank, the monster starts out being sort of the noble savage, pure innocent, filled with wonder at the world. But because he's denied, because he's seen as monstrous by others and because his creator refuses to do anything for him, that's what makes it, turns him into a murderer, basically. So what kind of responsibility do we have to our creations if these creations are enough to be sentient? And I mean, partly it's in the way children are sentient and we, you know, people who give birth to, to kids have to raise those kids. Partly it's like our, 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 our responsibilities to our animals. If you have a dog or a cat, you have to, you have certain responsibilities to the animal. The animal has its own emotions and its own feelings and you interact with it and you have to respect it in a certain respect and you have to guide it in certain ways. Here we have digital beings who only exist in code and yet they develop a degree of sentience, which is higher than those of non-human animals. And, they can express themselves in language and seem to have their own desires and and needs and feelings. And it becomes a question of what can they do and how can we respond to them? Mm-hmm. And, now, there, you know, oh, sorry, go on. No, that's that's fine for now. Yeah. 
So there are a few um, really interesting things that are happening in this chapter that I just want to flag um, for listeners before going back to something that you were just saying. Um, So among other things, the chapter is looking at the role of heuristics and experience and sentience, right? And making the point through a reading of this story that intelligence is always finite, it's situational, Mm -hmm. and it's embodied. And that situational and embodied aspect of intelligence um, is really, really important to the work that this story does in terms of helping us think with these broader issues of sentience and cognition. It also explores um, a kind of tension between the indigenous existence just as kind of entities and their economic utility, right? Since enjoyment and pleasure seems to be important to them, they can't be monetized. Um, And that's really, really interesting, I think, for all kinds of reasons, right? Um, In the world that we're living in today. That's one of the main issues in the story, which is that... um, I think Chang is interested in giving us this situated understanding. Um, he, he, a lot of it relates to how the software industry works and business cycles. Software is driven by economics. It costs a lot of money. If it's not profitable, it gets shut down. And so the story is partly about how the human programmers feel responsible towards their creations. But this responsibility also involves the fact that the creation exists in a virtual world. What if the company decides to pull the plug? The virtual world isn't earning enough money, don't have enough drivers, let's just pull the plug on it and turn everything off. Is that is is that just or moral? What if, I mean, there are all kinds of most grotesque possibility, which this story explores death is what if somebody wants to use these entities as kind of sex bots? And mm-hmm. it, it, it's it's a problem if they themselves have feelings and aren't just automatic responses the way maybe sex bots would be today. There's so, a very Westworld kind yeah, of conversation I mean, we could have about all this, right? But he, so, I mean, the environment, if, to say that situated embodied, I mean, this is going against, let's say, ideas of the singularity. People like Ray Kurzweil, who works at Google and has written books about the singularity, the idea that he he's like 75 years old and he expects to live forever because as long as he can make it till I think 2049 is the date when he thinks we'll be able to just download our intelligence into computers and then get rid of our bodies. Because once you're on the network, you, you know, you have to have a physical association. It can be anywhere. There are millions of computers. You can just go from computer to computer. So you will never die. Unlike if you have a single body and you're going to die. And this is a weird fantasy. And part of what it's about is this idea that somehow becoming digital would be completely unconstrained by embodiment and by physical limits. And that's not true. Um, the Digians in Chang's story are embodied in the sense that they exist as code, which is finite, which is in a certain world of code or a virtual world, which itself could be turned off or be recoded in ways that would destroy them. So the point is that everything is, is that because something is digital doesn't mean it's transcended or avoided the limits of biological bodies. It may have a different kind of body or a different kind of find finitude and situation, but it still has a very much affinitude and situation. And this, and, and it's really wonderful the way Chang moves between like ethical questions. If I program this thing, what responsibility do I have to my creation to economic things? Um, this costs a lot of money and companies which back, back this want to make a profit and they're going to shut it down or radically revise it if it's not making a profit. And this is, this is just as real constraint as the constraint of you know, I'm responsible for this digital creation the same I'm responsible for my dog, you know? I mean, there are all these things come up in different ways. That's right. And the issue of responsibility, right, of ethics yeah. um, is very much a concern that threads through the case studies of the next chapters, right? And so I want to kind of turn yeah. toward this because this seems to be a really persistent concern with a lot of this material. So yeah. chapter four and chapter five um, are really exist in relation to each other, right? Um, yeah. they, and, you, and you make that point in the book. Um, very briefly, Chapter four looks closely at R. Scott Baker's novel Neuropath from 2008, which is a near future sci-fi thriller, right? Now in this story, Thomas Bible, a 40-something psych professor and the author of a book, Through the Brain Darkly, um, he presents a new theory of the human mind known as the argument. So Steve, what is the argument and how does thinking with this story and with the consequences of the argument help us think about cognition and sentience for you? Okay. Well, I mean, this is, it's hard to disentangle the fiction from the author. So Scott Baker, the author of Neuropath, Neuropath and of other 
his most effort is in a big, long fan, heroic fantasy series. But anyway, he also writes on his blog about issues of consciousness and mind, and he's a dropout from from a from philosophy PhD program. So he quit his he quit like a year before he would have finished his PhD because he decided that he was wrong about everything. But he publishes lots of articles on his blog and sometimes in print about things. So basically, the argument in the novel is the same as Baker's arguments. In, the, in our in our world, which is basically that um, we are incapable of understanding ourselves in a very radical way. Uh, we don't have ration, pure rationality sort of doesn't exist. What we do have is a series of heuristics which work more or less well in, in various circumstances. The way we get into trouble speculatively, both in philosophy and in more informal life matters, is when we apply the heuristics where they don't apply. And Baker argues very strongly that they especially don't apply when we try to introspect, that the heuristics work more or less well when applied to the physical outside world, but they don't apply very well when they become reflexive and reflect on themselves, when they reflect on the inner world, when they reflect on the, on what it means to be conscious or to be cognitive or to know things. So he basically is making a radical ignorance argument that basically all our intuitions about ourselves are completely wrong. And that we really we have no insight into our I mean in, into our own mental processes. So that's that's sort of the largest argument. So therefore, anybody who believes basically it's it's very nihilistic. If it was anybody who believes in any ideals or any course of action for any reason is radically mistaken because they don't even know why they're doing what they're doing. Okay, so in his nonfiction, Baker argues that this is incredibly corrosive. That science is. That science, I mean, he gives several stages. I mean, basically, this became possible when we invented writing instead of just being having an oral culture. But then modern science is pushing to the point where all the scientific tools which have proven so helpful and other things are being turned upon ourselves. And they reach this limit there, which we find out that we don't know anything about ourselves and that everything we do believe about ourselves is delusional. And where does that leave us? He sees it in his nonfiction. He sees it as a kind of... Uh, what he calls a semantic apocalypse. All meaning becomes suspect and we basically have a nihilistic collapse of civilization. In in the novel, he's trying to do, again, do what he doesn't do in his nonfiction writing, which is precisely to do a kind of thought experiment, which only science fiction can do, and push through this in a different way. And he comes to, you know, it's it's a very horrific novel. Basically, what this means is if you can't understand yourself, but we can scientifically objectify things, but that objectification is totally incompatible with any way we can feel or think subjectively, then that becomes an incredible tool for manipulation. So basically what's happening in the novel is that the CIA has developed ways to completely manipulate anybody's brain in any ways you want, in any ways they want. And this becomes public when a when the, the protagonist's former best friend, who's a neuro surgeon goes rogue from the CIA and starts kidnapping people, rewiring their brains with grotesque experiments and releasing them back out so that they do horrible things. And this is designed to demonstrate there's no such thing as free will and there's no such thing as understanding why we do what, what, what we do. But it's all quite horrific and the novel's incredibly bleak and doesn't offer any way out of this. Right. So it's, so... it's, just, it's, it's you know, it's a, it's a very dystopian, very dark kind of fable about the consequences of what in his nonfiction the author calls the semantic apocalypse or the collapse of meaning, which leads to no, you know, the impossibility of any self-insight, which also leads to the way in which we can so easily be manipulated scientifically by any organization like this, like the government or large corporations, which are have enough money to throw at the problem to develop technologies which will manipulate the rest of us. So if the human mind is incapable of understanding itself, right, the chapter asks, what is it like to actually live and experience the world in such a way that Nagel's, what is it like, right, the bat, what's it like to be a bat question becomes meaningless. And this is a, this um, kind of taking Nagel's question as a, an anchor point to kind of explore from is something that chapter six does as well, right? This is yeah. something that follows us through. And now chapter six looks at Peter Watts's novel, Blind Sight from 2006. Yeah. It's a book about first contact with aliens. And there are very um, 
if different uh, fundamentally related questions to what you were just talking about, right? So it raises questions about the nature of consciousness by, in the words of the book, imagining radical post-human mind alterations alongside a truly alien sort of Mm -hmm. intelligence. So you make a point here, human nature becomes increasingly a product, right? People are augmenting themselves, seeking kind of post-human augmentation. Um, Now, ultimately, and this is a fascinating chapter, and I want to just flag this for listeners, the chapter and the story follows some of the questions we've already been talking about in this podcast to specifically take on the issue, not just of responsibility, but of empathy, right? It looks at the notion and production of empathy. And the big question, again, going back to Nagel, um, which is why I kind of segued here from what we were talking about, how do we imagine what it's like to be a bat or an alien or whatever if you cannot really empathize with other entities like the narrator, um, Siri Keaton, does, right? So. Can you speak a little bit? Um, I know this is a huge set of questions, yeah, sure. and we can talk well, about this story, right? Like forever. Well, that's what's For great you. about these stories and novels is that they are rich reflections on questions which you know you can't answer easily, can't really circumscribe, can't really give a good, strictly philosophical account of. Exactly. So for you, Steve, what is particularly interesting to think with when you think um, about and with this this novel, perhaps, um, but not necessarily around issues of empathy? Okay, well, the novel has sort of two strands which interact. One is a post-human society where people have done all kinds of things to make cognitive enhancements of their brains and done all kinds of things to their brains. And um, the narrator is somebody who's had half his brain removed, which is actually in real life already uh, sometimes done in cases of epilepsy, which are very extreme and which can't be treated any other way. Um, and he sort of, his sense of self completely changes with half of his brain removed and the other half augmented by these, you know, physical, you know, or technological augments. And he doesn't feel any kind of empathy with other people. He doesn't have any sense of what other people feel because he doesn't really have any sense of what he feels. And he discover, he develops all kinds of ways to simulate this. It makes him a more objective observer in some ways, but it also makes him delusional in other ways because he can't kind of spontaneously imagine um, what it's like to be somebody else. And as I said, it's partly because he can't spontaneously imagine what it is to be himself. He has to sort of experiment. He has to try things out and see what happens is the only way he can even get self-knowledge. And he applies the same thing to, to, to the outside. I think empathy often, in, you know, as we understand it in the world today, often involves um, sort of we can understand to the extent we understand how we react and feel, we can understand how other people react and feel. I mean, I teach film studies and I'm teaching a class on Hollywood actors right now, and we talk a lot about method acting, which becomes popular 50 or 60 years ago, and is still the basic means of for Hollywood actors, which is you have to somehow get yourself into the space of the character you're portraying, who can, of course, be radically different from who you are as an actual person. And there are various different types of techniques for doing that. But what does it mean to become a certain, you know, and it may lead to the suspicion that even what we are ourselves authentically or think authentically is, is also something which we learn to do in this kind of indirect way. And then we've done it so much that it appears natural to us, but it's not. But anyway, um, so you have people with all kinds of cognitive enhancements which change the way they operate. Um, and then a crew of six of these people was sent out to the edges of the solar system to try to make contact and find out with and kind of about an alien race from another solar system, which has somehow come to our solar system and discovered our existence. And what happens in the course of the story is that it turns out that these aliens are in every possible cognitive and technological way far superior to us. They outthink us strategically, have much more powerful technology and so on and so forth. But what they eventually discover is that these aliens are not conscious at all. They operate entirely on the kind of level of non-conscious processing. So in the sense that the novel is called blind, blind Sight. And Blind Sight is an actual phenomenon where people who are blind, nonetheless, to a certain extent, are able to see non-consciously. So if a person with blind sight, basically they have 
there's some damage somewhere in their brain which prevents them from being conscious of seeing things, but there's nothing wrong with their eyes and from the neurons which go in their eyes into their brain. So they have certain non-conscious responses. So if you if you say there's a light shining, which direction is the light shining from? They'll say, I don't know. I don't see any light. But if you tell them to just guess, then they'll point in the correct direction most of the time. If you throw them a ball, they might even catch it because they'd see the ball even though they are not conscious of seeing it. So there's a radical disjunction between how our mental processing works. And then it's, so it's asking the same question that a lot of these other things ask, but what does consciousness itself add? And mm-hmm. the novel, so the novel is a thought experience saying, what is consciousness good for? Maybe it's not good for anything. Now, they're not all neuro, neurobiologists and philosophers agree with this. A lot of them say, well, there are certain things that consciousness really is good for and allows us to do what you wouldn't be able to do if we were unconscious. But the point of the novel is to push as far as possible to what an ent- biological entities could do without being conscious. And again, as we now know, and again, I refer to the book by Catherine Hales I mentioned earlier, there's a great deal of mental stuff which goes on without being conscious. Now, Mm -hmm. I mean, this also brings up, I mean, my definition of sentience, it's unclear how it applies. In the book, the author seems to imply that if you're not conscious, you're not sentient, you just, you know, in effect, machine logic. But I'm not so sure. I mean, at one point, the humans capture some of these aliens and try to put them to test. And this is where they discover they aren't conscious. They aren't aware of themselves in a certain sense. They're just, and, but, but you can get information out of them or give, force them to answer questions by torturing them with pain. So they don't feel pain, but nonetheless, they're pain aversive and do things to avoid pain. So what does that mean? It's, it's a whole series of kind of my, it's, it's one of the best science fiction novels of the last 20 years, partly because it raises all these incredible mind blowing questions without, with no very clear or possibility of giving an answer. Now, some of these questions are actually really beautifully followed through in the next chapter, right? And I can't let you go from this podcast without asking you (laughs) to talk about slime molds. So this is chapter seven, thinking like a slime mold. Um, So chapter seven considers the cognitive powers of the plasmodial slime mold, Physerum polycephalum. And it opens with the question, what's it like to be a plasmodial slime mold? So this touches on, uh, I mean, very much, or it's very much related to what you were just talking about, right? You show here in various ways that the slime mold exhibits a thought process, but its mode of thinking does not involve concepts, representations, self-awareness, an underlying unity of experience. Mm -hmm. So what does it mean, right, to think about consciousness when thinking with a slime mold? So as a way of maybe bringing us toward our conclusion, Steve, can you talk a little bit about this? What's most interesting for you about thinking with the slime mold as a way of thinking about sentience or cognition? Well, like the science fiction narrators I talk about, it's a kind of way of thinking about a mode of sentience, to use the word I prefer broad, that's the most broad word, that is not very similar to ours. It has to be biologically related to ours ultimately. But um, so, I mean, the body of the book, I have five chapters discussing recently published, post-2000 published science fiction narratives. But the opening chapter, as we talked about before, is about philosophy, is about analytic philosophy. And I read the science fiction question, which seems to me to crop up in these philosophical papers for the most part. And the last chapter, I read actual scientific reports as a kind of science fiction. So I'm trying to avoid like projecting or making up anything mythical. I mean, these are, my source matter is entirely articles by biologists who have studied slime molds, which are these very strange organisms. Slime molds are sort of like giant amoebas. They, they're, they're a sack of protoplasm, but they're in between being a single cell and a multicellular organism. So slime molds, the nuclei divide, and in a slime, mature slime mold, there may be millions of nuclei. But unlike all other organisms, when nuclei divide, the cell wall doesn't divide. So whereas even a bacterium, which doesn't have a nucleus, when it divides, it reproduces by dividing, and you have two bacteria where you had one before. Um, when you get to organism, eukaryotes, organisms with nuclei, it's more complicated. A paramecium or an amoeba or a, some other one-celled organism. Again, when when the, the we have meiosis, we have the division of the chromosomes, and then they get companion in half, and then you get companion pairs, and that becomes two separate cells, become two separate organisms. In multicellular beings, where those are subordinated, our individual cells are often dividing, at least up to a certain age, but nonetheless 
we the organism as a whole has a certain unity or, or control. But slime molds are like they don't specialize into different tissues the way all multicellular organisms do. But neither do they become separate organisms when they divide, when the nuclei divide the way single-celled nucleated organisms do. They, they remain as this kind of single cell or single blob, even though there may be millions of nuclei. As a result, they're the largest single-celled organisms, and you can see them. I mean, they can be three inches, five inches, eight inches long. Um, so, and this is one stage of their life cycle. There's another stage. Basically, when they become, they, they have sexual reproduction. When they become gametes, they are one unicellular organisms, which are microscopic. We can't see with the naked eye. And they swim around as unicellular organisms for a while. But in this case, they only have, they're like sperm and egg cells. They only have half the number of chromosomes. And then they reunite. And when they reunite, they become these enormous blobs. Okay, so sciences have shown that there's a lot of cognitive activity going on, even though obviously these organisms don't have brains. They don't have any specialized cell types at all. They're just blobs, but they seek out food, they grow, they eat things. And experiments have shown that they have very complex responses to the world. They're not just mechanistically stimulus response. So it's a kind of intelligence or a kind of sentience or a kind of cognition, which is very hard to understand in human terms. Even and even though it may be, I mean, it's biologically related to us. Probably some of the same neurotransmitters which are responsible for in animals are internal to this unit cell structure, which rhythmically pulses to send information one state to another. But they can they can explore mazes, they can solve mazes, they can find efficient routes between food sources, they can make decisions between different possibilities, and they 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 can respond to changes in the environment and all kinds of stuff. So I just sort of was fascinated by these scientific reports and said, what if we read this as a kind of scientific science fiction story? And of course there are science fiction stories about blobs, but mm -hmm. they, these were not done with knowledge of what scientists in the last 10, basically this is only done the last 10 or 12 years that we've discovered all these weird cognitive powers, which these entities have. So it seemed to me that it's, that you can extrapolate from what the scientific record is saying. And it's like a science fiction narrative. I mean, I'm trying to partly explain again how science fiction goes beyond what science actually discovers, but it's kind of grounded in the kind of possibilities that science explores. And so that's why I wanted to end the, end this, end the book by, having, by looking at these organisms. So, so I'll just mention for listeners, um, we won't have time to talk about this, but there's also an afterword that comes after um, these seven chapters that sets out 22 speculative theses about nature that together provide a broad framework within which the arguments of the book may be placed. So I just want to point listeners to that afterword, even though we won't have time to substantively talk about it. So Steve, um, this yeah. has been a fascinating conversation and I absolutely want to talk to you for like yeah. seven hours and maybe we can do that after yeah. after today after the podcast but in the meantime is there anything else about the book that we didn't have time to talk about but that you feel is important to mention for listeners not necessarily i mean i think you know once you finish a book you sort of have to give it away and so i'm really happy when people come up with stuff from the book which i may not have known about or intended when i wrote it but that means the writing's working that it's raising issues and making people think but I don't have anything particular. This is my message and you didn't mention it or anything like that. Okay. So now that the book is out, and I know you've also got another book out, um, what are you working on right now? Um, well, at this point, I seem to be working mostly in two fields. One is science fiction, which is usually, again, like this cognition, it's written science fiction rather than science fiction movies, though so I, I pay some attention to them. And the other is about music videos, which seem to be an interesting new art form. They've only existed since about 1980, and they involve cinematic procedures, but used in a very different way, and, and they involve different relations in sounds and images. But mostly I'm working on the science fiction, and I'm trying to, I have several projects I'm in the middle of, or different stages of, but I'm trying to continue with the general idea about using science fiction to think about other other issues. So I'm sort of trying to finish one book where I just go through a series of stories where science fiction is asked a question about philosophy, about biology, and 
and and about ecological crisis. That's that's one thing. The other thing, which is much less developed, but which I'm probably end up being longer, is I'm trying to think about. I mean, my understanding of science fiction has to do with science fiction as a kind of understanding of futurity. So I'm trying to again use science fiction rather than philosophy to think about issue of what it what what does it mean? What is futurity? I mean, as in what extent is the future real? Well, um, that's a loaded question, and I won't try to answer it. But um, do we just if we science fiction? I think presumes we're not just living in the in the present, but that we have past that pasts and futures are also informing our present. Now, it's more obvious maybe in the case of the past. I mean, William Faulkner famously said the past isn't past; it isn't, isn't dead; it isn't even past. What's happened in the past still presses upon us, and. We never live in an instant moment now where what came before and how and the forces which led to where we are now have no relevance. They continue to work. But to what extent do potentialities of the future have have on our present? To what extent do they already exist in some sense or another in, in the present? Um, and that's the kind of question I'm trying to ask both about science fiction and to see how science fiction itself deal, deals with that, that, that kind of issue. And this has to do with the fact science fiction is, I mean, anybody who's, a lot of people in science fiction will say rightly, science fiction is not predicting the future. In terms of predicting the actual future, science fiction generally gets things wrong. But that doesn't mean that science fiction doesn't have any relation to the future or to futurity. It's, I mean, another cliche is that science fiction is really about the time it's written, which is obviously true to a certain extent. But times science fiction is always extrapolating, projecting beyond the present moment in which it is written, which is why it takes place usually in a future time. And part of the question uh, is how does science fiction reshape our notions of temporality or deal with aspects of temporality that are not just the, the, the here and now, the present moment. And I'm talking mostly about the future because that seems to be the harder and less obvious thing. I think you can think about the past also, um, Obviously, one thing fantasy novels, as opposed to science fiction, does is they're set in imaginary pasts, whereas science fiction is set in imaginary futures. So, I mean, you could broaden the question and ask for that also. What are these narratives doing? How are they dealing with a, How are they providing us an account of something which exists as a few, as potentiality, as a potential future, as a kind of futurity, but which won't actually ever become present when you know, hundred years, five years from now, hundred years from now, whatever takes place. So that's what I'm mostly trying to write about now. Well, Steve, thank you so much for taking time out of that to talk with me today. It's really been a pleasure, and congratulations on an awesome book. Thank you. You've been listening to the New Books Network Seminar. Thanks so much for joining us, and check us out again soon.